This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. And I want to thank our directors, certainly, for um, making the time to come to UCSB today. So I have asked them to uh, introduce themselves by telling us a little story. Um, Whatever it is that you feel the audience should know about you, and especially with a view to how you came into filmmaking. So, Lan, can you start? Yes, I can share. So my name is Lan Nguyen. I use she, her pronouns. And oh, and you are the director of? I am the director of Limbo or Bikeak. That's the documentary about the um, individual who is formerly incarcerated and facing deportation. So the story that I will share will be about how I got into filmmaking. So the film that you all saw was actually the first film that I had ever created. Uh, what really inspired me to do this work of filmmaking is that I am a community organizer. So that's actually how I met the subject of the film. Um, I'm recently, in, within the past two or so years, I became active in progressive Vietnamese-American community organizing, and that's when I learned about the issue of how deportation is impacting Vietnamese communities, and that's an issue that's very near and dear to my heart. Although none of my family members are at risk of deportation, I feel like a lot of the situations that my family have faced are so similar to the situations that people like the subject of my film have faced So I realized in our community that there are, the film was directed, um, the primary audience, I wanted it to be Vietnamese Americans. So the the film, I saw a need in our community where there were our own people, our own Vietnamese American people were not being supportive of our formerly incarcerated uh, community members, not everyone, but a a percentage. And I wanted to speak to that audience and, and, you know, show people that their stories are just like the stories of our own family and that we should really go come together and come behind them. And I, I, you know, I could go around and have lots of conversations with people. That's a lot of work. So I thought that, you know, making a film about it would be less work for me, but also so much more powerful for spreading the message. So that's how I got involved in filmmaking. And Gwyn? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Gwyn Whitley. Uh, I use they, them pronouns. Um, so I got into filmmaking as a high schooler. I went to school in Los Angeles, and we just happened to have a film program and our teacher just kind of threw us right into sort of social justice filmmaking. So instantly I always thought about filmmaking as a tool for social justice. And that was uh, in addition to sort of anger in my teenage years about never seeing people like me on the screen. I think that was what kind of prompted me to start make, making films right away. So I went to film school. I quit film school. I studied literature. Um, I did all these things, but I kind of always knew that I would come back to filmmaking. Um, So that's kind of how I got into filmmaking. And I think it's easy to get into filmmaking, but how I think I've stayed is by meeting other great Asian-American filmmakers, such as Lan and Katie. And I think that so much of... It's just the start to be angry about not being represented. And I think it's like another step to build community and to work together to make more narratives about ourselves. So that's just briefly about me and how I got into filmmaking. And when you directed Nook? Oh, I'm sorry, yes. And I <laughs> directed uh, Nook, uh, Water Slash Homeland. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Katie Lay. Um, my pronouns are she, her. 
Um, I live in Los Angeles, um, but I was born and raised in San Jose, California. Um, my film was the first one, Like Mother, Like Daughter. It was about a Vietnamese-American trans woman um, on Lunar New Year, reconnecting with her mother over their love of an aoyai, um, a traditional silk dress that women wear on this um, on this very important um, holiday in my heritage. Um, so growing up in San Jose, I grew up near Little Saigon, and my neighborhood was known for having a really strong Vietnamese community, but I feel like growing up in like the TV shows and movies that I watched, I never really saw myself represented, and um, you know, growing up, my parents encouraged me to go for a career that was more pragmatic, so filmmaking wasn't really in the cards for me until I got accepted into UCLA for film school, so I moved down to LA um, to pursue film, and that was kind of where my start in film was, and kind of along the way, I had all of these amazing Asian-American female filmmakers that served as my mentors in LA, and that was when I started feeling like home when I you know, I was meeting more filmmakers like Guyan and Lan that were Vietnamese-American like me, and I was meeting people that shared my stories. Um, and uh, I think the inspiration for my short film, um, it came from a period where I was coming to terms with, you know, my sexuality as a queer person. And I had a really close friend, Tina, who actually plays lead in my short film. Tina is both... Vietnamese American and trans and we are just both talking about how it was so rare to see characters that were both you know Vietnamese queer and female on top of that and so um, Tina and I worked together to kind of create the story together and the script and um, we both really locked on this image of an Aoyai and we were both going through we were both thinking a lot about like you know our relationships with their mother. Um, Tina was just coming out to her mother as trans and getting acceptance for that. So we took kind of like this energy and angst that we were feeling and our kind of budding identity and just kind of put that into our film and translated that on screen together as like director and, and actress. That's remarkable. So uh, I was actually going to ask about your inspirations for the films and, uh, you know, uh, some backstory. So. Katie, you've already started us off with some of the inspiration, but if you could speak more to some backstories that other people wouldn't know about. <laughs> yeah, I guess, um, I guess I guess one thing that people wouldn't know about is uh, I guess I guess backstory. I guess one interesting that uh, one interesting thing that happened on set, um, people always ask me what was the most difficult part about shooting my short film. And I would tell them the most difficult part was um, keeping myself from eating the spring rolls that you saw in the first scene. Like, I just had such a hard time not eating that set food. My producer was like, hey, you can't eat the food. It's set food. But I'm like, it's real food that we got from a restaurant. I'm the director. I really want to eat that food. So that was the most difficult part, I think, just disciplining myself to not eat the food that was on screen. Um, but, yeah, I think, like I was saying, the inspiration came from, you know, not just figuring out myself, but... Um, I think my lead actress, she was really the muse for the whole thing. Like, I initially wrote and kind of conceptualized that short film um, all around her. And so I think the inspiration really much came from, you know, my lead actress being my muse, being my close friend, and having this strong desire to 
have more visibility for people that are transgender in our Vietnamese American community. Thank you. And you yeah, I think for me, when so I uh, wrote and directed and completed Note in 2016, so it's really wild to think about how long ago that was, but also not that long. Um, and at the time, I was thinking a lot about kind of converging identities that I felt were not always put together. So being queer, and maybe in this film very specifically, non-binary, queer, and Vietnamese American, and also in a way political, and thinking about how to create a story that interweaves all of these kinds of identities um, in a way that makes sense. <laughs> or is, um, and for this film, it was made as a part of a fellowship program that only gave us five minutes. So this is five minutes, 37 seconds. I pushed it a little. And so in five minutes, how can I tell what I've been feeling about being queer, about being Vietnamese American second generation, and to sort of accurately represent how people like my mother are without like writing them into a fictional character that tells you everything that they feel. Because it wasn't quite my experience growing up. I think that a lot of my understanding of their history came from photographs and movies that were fiction, some documentaries. They would tell me certain things here and there over the years. And so I was like gathering all these things. And so I didn't, so the film in its structure is kind of like that. So it's like partial imagination, like some things kind of happen. It's not really like, like I don't know what is fiction and what is nonfiction, if that is even the thing. And so I wanted to represent that kind of feeling of being like second generation and how you're learning about your parents' history in that way. But also maybe I was seeing a lot of films about Asian American parents not accepting their queer children. And I wanted to sort of address maybe more complex story around that of like it not being just being shunned or kicked out but what are ways that they do accept you or at least you can read the ending some people actually read it as like oh the mom says friend so she doesn't accept you but other people are like well whatever gender they are your parents always call your like significant other your friend so others have read it as accepting so I'll just leave it up to all of you to decide but I did want it to be more accurate to how I've experienced things. And, and actually could you say a little bit about, is there a, a moment that you remember having to make a particularly difficult choice in the filmmaking process? And I'll ask you. Hmm. Uh, I think the difficulty was in writing it and kind of um, pitching to people like, okay, and then they're going to be like in the womb and they're going <laughs> to rip the umbilical cord and then be born into a desert, you know, like, and so things like that were hard to explain to people because I wasn't quite sure how to explain and I couldn't really quite reference things. I think that was fine and production was pretty easy. Everything went as planned. My Actually, my camera person got a burst appendix so I guess that was difficult <laughs> so like after day three he was like wing I'm in the hospital and I was like okay that's fine we'll just, <laughs> we'll just postpone the rest of this till later but I, I, I think in terms of um, difficulty all the prep work was done before in terms of I think my crew really trusted me um, both Roe and their mom uh, are in this film, so they're actual real mother and child. 
it's their first film, um, their first time acting. So I think people really trusted me, and even my parents kind of, I'll keep this short because I'm sure there's other questions, but for the umbilical cord, that's in my parents' garage, and I was just like building this like thing in their garage, and then like there was like a shirtless non-binary person like running around, and my dad was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm making a film in your garage. I already asked mom. <laughs> and he was like, okay. <laughs> and so I think there was a lot of trust. And people are just like, that's just wing being wing. Like, we're not going to ask. We'll just see what happens. So I think I had a fairly okay time. <laughs> um, I think a difficult decision that I made that I'm still... You know, every day I'm just kind of like going back and forth and like, was this the right call? Should I have done it the other way? Was whether or not to disclose my subject's crime in the documentary. So it was very intentional as to why I left that out because I feel like formerly incarcerated people are constantly defined by the crime that they committed. You know, when you apply to jobs, you know, when you will, you know, and meet people, it's just always like the label that you get. So I made an intentional choice to be like, you know, like, the, he, this already defines him in every other walk of life. In my film, I want to focus on how much he loves his family. Um, I want to focus on the good that he does in the community and all these other aspects that define his life and not just the crime that he did. But, you know, I do wonder that by not disclosing his crime, you know, people are going to, you know, I don't know, people are left wondering, you know, like after seeing that movie, if not knowing the crime, they're walking away thinking like, well, what is it? And they're just forgetting about, you know, all the other things that I've shown. So that was something that, I had a lot of trouble um, thinking about and debating on it. It's something that I still am wondering about now. But I think at the end of the day, you know, I do agree that people should not be defined by the crime that they committed. But, you know, if people are willing to share and take ownership of it, which my subject was willing to do, you know, he took ownership and responsibility, then, you know, I do want to acknowledge and show that, that responsibility and ownership as well. So it's something that I'm still debating. I think it was a great choice. It really worked for me. Um, and so, is there any backstory that stands out for you in your recollection of the process? Um, I think I had shared a little bit about this earlier, but I really saw this film as a tool of community organizing. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I'm hesitant to identify as a filmmaker. You know, I don't really have that much formal training on filmmaking. A lot of this was just like, I have a camera, I watched a lot of YouTube videos, and of course I had <laughs> a lot of really amazing mentors who helped me out. But I am a little bit hesitant about that because I do primarily identify as a community organizer. So I think my backstory for this film and a lot of the, my, my, I saw it as a strategy. So the way that I um, did the narrative arc was I saw it as a, a strategic tool for my goals that I wanted to accomplish to shift the narrative to further push my goals of how I wanted the community to respond to support our formerly incarcerated folks and our undocumented folks. So I saw it as a... Yeah, a strategic tool to further activism. Okay. So I'm going to shift gears for a little bit now and ask questions that are specific to the filmmakers and their films. And uh, I'm going to start with Lando and you know, I'll continue with what you were saying, which is, so you mentioned that you had met them through your activist mm -hmm. work. Um, can you tell us about that? Uh, was the first meeting uh, memorable when, you know, yeah, so I mean, as you can see from the film, he's a very charismatic person, a very mm -hmm. wonderful speaker. So I had met him at um, a training called Habat Drung School of Organizing, and it's a training for progressive Vietnamese American organizers. And we had a community organizing panel where they just invited people from various groups to come talk. And when I heard him speak, I was just like amazed by his charisma. And then I also related to his story. I grew up in um, Cambodia town Long Beach, which is pretty heavily 
there was a lot of crime, there was a lot of gang activity, and from living in that area, I knew firsthand that people who commit crimes aren't bad people, it's just like a bad circumstance. So I really empathize with the situation because I came from that sort of neighborhood. So I really was inspired to get involved in the work, and from speaking with him and uh, volunteering with his, with his organization, that's how we got involved. And actually one of, the, one of our goals of the film was to um, further his pardon campaign. So when you are at risk of being deported due to um, a criminal conviction, one way to combat it is to get a pardon from a governor where the governor basically erases your crime from the record. So we, I, we submitted to that film to the governor and he did end up receiving his pardon. So that was, um, a, yeah. But, uh, I mean, I, I, not, that I, not, not that the film took credit, but, you know, he was a wonder. He did a lot of good work, got a yeah, lot of, uh, the community got behind him. So, yeah. Um, and then, uh, Gwyn, do you mind telling the audience about the, the iconic war images that you sure. use in the opening sequence? Yeah, sure. So, uh, like I mentioned before, I was thinking a lot about how my understanding of what happened to my parents didn't quite come from them, but from other sources. So mm-hmm. I wanted to comment about um, the use of photographs. So I, you know, I picked very iconic photographs from the Vietnam War that were mostly taken by photojournalists. So, um, and then I sort of recreated them in that um, fantasy s- sequence. So you see them in the dark room being developed quite literally, um, and then later in the sequence. So the ones that were there was, um, I don't know what they're all called, but (laughs) like the titles of it. There's the one where the South Vietnamese general is shooting the other like um, accused communist person, um, and that was such a turning point in the war. There was um, the little girl who was being affected by Agent Orange. Um, she's still alive and living in Canada right now, so I didn't want to call her Napalm Girl. Um, and, you know, I feel like I'm forgetting one. And then there's, a, you know, the flower power, which actually are multiple photos, but I kind of just recreated the gist of it, and that's what I was saying about historical and fiction, is that the photo in my film is not actually the photo. It was one that I created with my actress to kind of get the gist of people's, like, imagination of what had happened at that time. Um, And so in the sequence when um, they are drawn into the photo, they go to kind of like a Vietnam War protest, and then it turns into the person shooting the other person, and then um, they're taking picture with orange. So that was my representation of like the napalm picture without showing like a naked child running and I wanted to kind of turn the trauma and also ask the question of like, oh, who was taking that photo? Which, you know, it's like Nick Oot, like, like people know, but just sort of like we're watching you watching us and kind of evoke those images without quite seeing them. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was thought it? it was a very interesting choice and it was very second generation to me. Mm-hmm, I mean, that, mm-hmm. that as even though Vietnamese Americans, right. that our knowledge of the war, as you were saying, is right. also those very popularized images. Right, right, right. right. And they're very... Um, I also used uh, Full Metal Jacket, so the sound mm-hmm. of the Meal of You Long Time comes from the Stanley Kubrick film. Mm-hmm. Um, and that our projector was not as bright as I thought, but I was literally projecting that image onto the body of mm-hmm. the actor, um, and that's when you hear the sound. So using a lot of both fiction and non-fiction. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. 
And then, Katie, could you tell the audience a little more about the, the thank rituals, the, the New Year's rituals that you're depicting at the opening scenes? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so for um, those of you that aren't aware, um, that basically is Vietnamese for um, Lunar's New Year. Um, so kind of on that holiday, um, you know, families, the older generation will give, like, their, like, the younger generation, like, the kids, like, um, red envelopes. In Vietnamese, we call them lisi. Um, and it's kind of like a holiday that we use to sort of, like, symbolize, like, a new beginning to things. Um, in my family, Lunar's New Year was kind of always, like, a very big festive celebration and one of like the biggest images from Lunar's New Year is um, just like this image of, of an Aoyai. Um, I remember growing up like I would you know I, I would wear Aoyai and it would be like this super like it's a super like you know silk dress that's like totally form-fitting and so, like, if it doesn't, if it's, like, tight on you, then, like, your grandma or your aunt, like, makes fun of you for, like, gaining weight or whatever. Um, it's, it's a very, like, it's a very, like, um, tight dress. But it's just so symbolic to femininity and grace in Vietnamese culture. And so, for me, I wanted to explore what if, um, you know, what if a transgender woman explores wearing this dress for the first time in her family and, like, how does she relate that to herself as a woman, but also to herself as like, a daughter and a Vietnamese woman and all those things? Um, so it's always interesting kind of seeing how, like, a primarily Vietnamese audience reacts to this movie versus, like, you know, a, a non-Vietnamese audience and kind of how they sort of um, understand those cultural backgrounds. But that's sort of, like, the backstory of, of, uh, of Lunar's New Year in my film. And actually, since you mentioned the outside, yeah, uh, I was curious. Did you the actual outside that uh, Robin tries on? Mm-hmm. Where did they come from? Right. Um, so um, the um, so the first Aoyai that um, the blue one um, was Tina's, like the lead actress's, like that was her Aoyai, um, and then the red one belonged to my producer. That was where they came from. And then the other Aoyai, they were also like, they belonged to my producer. And I was very lucky to have um, a Vietnamese American woman be a producer for my short film because I kind of had someone helping me that like also understood my background. And she was also from my hometown in San Jose, but we met at UCLA film school. And I, I was so curious because it's not just that the, the dresses are form-fitting, right? But that they're, they're usually custom-made, mm-hmm. right? So... Yeah. They're just they to measure, yeah. And so it's really difficult to get into somebody else's outside, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. And uh, we're gonna move back this way. So, Quinn, mm-hmm. um, I as I was listening, you know, to the film, its dialogue, and also reading mm-hmm. the translations, I was really struck by the difference in the way that English works, which is the way that Vietnamese works, and specifically. Uh, in terms of uh, in forms of address, right? So in English, everyone's a you, everyone's an I, right? Mm-hmm. But in Vietnamese, no matter whom you're addressing, uh, you have to pick a relational pronoun. And the relational pronoun is often even like a familial pronoun, right? Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> if you uh, are in a romantic relationship, usually if it's hetero, it takes the form of uh, the, the woman is younger sister, and the, uh, the man is older brother. And this is how a couple addresses each other, right? Um, 
But, you know, in, in this case, who is the sister? Who is, you know, younger? Who is older? How does that, how did you navigate that? Yeah, I think, thank you for asking that question. So, as also as second generation Vietnamese American, my Vietnamese is not that great. So, I have actually had help and like debate and like people are like telling me which ones they thought. Um, and I'll also say that my Vietnamese has leveled up since this film. So if anyone has questions about the translation, we can talk about it later. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's difficult to think about um, like a non-binary character and how to not write gender into the pronoun that they use because Vietnamese is so gendered. Um, but also to not take away the kind of familiarity of like having like an am like and it's like older brother and am is like younger. I would say I know it's also like woman, but it's also sibling. It's a little bit more gender neutral. I don't know in the way that it's used. But um, and so a lot of the questions around like how do you maintain intimacy? Like because you can call each other friend or like by name, but how do you indicate that like? you're together, especially if you're the same age. And so I think about that a lot, too, mm-hmm. in my own personal relationship with mm-hmm. people. And so I think a lot of queer people actually, like, joke. Um, and for, like, Vietnamese speakers out there, there's, like, people would, like, call themselves, like, ông bà, like, <laughs> older man and, like, oh, older woman, even though you're clearly not. Or, like, people would just play with pronouns mm-hmm. that are clearly not fitting of them. Um, but I didn't want to do that in this film because I thought people would get confused about like, wait, who's um and who's like gold ai and you know like all these like different like words that in Vietnamese if you're fluent and someone's using that word you're like oh they're so funny because they're calling themselves um when they're like young. Um, so in this film, I think I wanted to use am because it's so kind of like loving and nourishing and then the one that we settled on was gung which is like precious and like but it was very hard to write the translation in a way that just wouldn't use the pronoun so i don't know if we accomplished it but it was that was a something that we talked about deeply in terms of like we would even in the translation change the sentence structure to avoid the pronoun and i think second generation does that a lot too like Mm -hmm. we'll just skip the pronoun and say the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, or like Vietnamese Americans in Orange County would say, say you, me and you, like, me and it's in English, but you just use me and you. But anyway, I, I just wanted it to be simple and not be critiqued by people who'd be like, you used the wrong pronoun. But it's yeah. a very fraught choice. Yeah, yeah. 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 So mm-hmm. and you, you mentioned in the film as well as here that uh, Jerry Brown pardoned or released um, the early, and it was also the only case that, in which he, he did that, right? So, and then, yes, the film has something to do with it. Uh, what were the other rationales for the, the exception that Jerry Brown made, and uh, how replicable is that for other cases? Yeah, so it's uh, two different incidences. So the pardon was after the release and after the okay. film, and the early release was there's another word for it that's not a pardon, but that was like overruling the parole board. So the prison system, as you can see from the film, is like really there's a lot of bureaucracy. It takes a long time. So when the when you get your parole hearing, that means that there's a potential that you know people think that you're not going to be a harm to society. So I've actually had some uh, friends who are formerly incarcerated who I think are amazing people, but have had like ten parole board hearings before they were you know deemed uh, releasable. 
So once you are deemed releasable, it's usually a couple years. So it's like even though the, you do your interviews, you do your le- they read your letters, they you know look at your references, and they're like, yeah, you're not a harm to society, but you still gotta wait three more years. That's usually how it works for some reason. Um, so in Thong's uh, particular incidents, what had happened is he was volunteering, or an outside group was volunteering to do a concert within the prison, and he was a prison volunteer doing like security making sure that the guests were, um, you know, knew where to go, like helped seating them. But there was a riot within the prison. So what he and some other inmates had done is they formed a human wall between the prisoners and the outside volunteers, making sure that the volunteers were okay. So I think that that act um, compared, uh, as well as like his rehabilitation record and the programs that he was involved in really inspired Jerry Brown to um, overrule the parole board hearing for an immediate release. Well, that's quite a story. Yeah. Um, and so, outside of well, film festivals, I'm sure this work, this work that you've done is also circulated. So, can you tell us about you know, other campaigns, organizing the film has been part of? I usually use it as a way to educate people about what's happening. I think when we think about immigration and deportation, it's focused a lot on the Latinx community, mm-hmm. and I think that 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 is, that's a community that um, the Southeast Asian community stands in solidarity with, but. When you don't have visibility, it's hard to get um, policies passed. So I, I like to show it um, in classrooms and at educational events. And I think a lot of people use it as a tool to get people interested in the issue. You know, when you just talk facts and policies, you know, sometimes it can go over people's head. But when you have, when you see someone on screen and it pulls at your heartstrings, it makes you care. It makes you want to go and do something. So when I'm training a group of organizers on how to do know your rights trainings, you know, sometimes that language can be a little dry. So doing this can really like pique someone's interest and get them motivated to do trainings. Thank you. So um, moving back the other way, Gwen. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, this boat scene mm-hmm. at the end? You know, on stranded in the desert, the highly symbolic. So can sure. you unpack it for us? Sure. Yeah, so the title of the film is Nuk, which also means, uh, which means both water and kind of short, shorthand for homeland in Vietnamese. And I'm not the first Vietnamese-American artist or Vietnamese diasporic or Vietnamese artist to use that word. There's, it's a very poetic word. There's like books and poems and like projects. But uh, that's kind of where I started with the film. Um, I knew it had to be about all these things, but I wanted to use the imagery of the water. So in Vietnamese, when you say maknu, it means like you lost water, you don't have water, but it also means like you lost your country. And so it's very literal. So the boat is in a place where there's no water. It's a desert. And that it was just what it meant. Um, and it, kind of the sequence leading up to it, uh, I just wanted to talk about a little bit is sort of I went all the way back into the womb because I was thinking about the idea that I had when I was younger about escaping my parents history like before you're even born you already are a part of this story like you're there's things that people already think about you and things that have come before you that affect you before you're even born and I think a lot of people including myself have thought about what would it be like if I could separate myself from my mother and my history. And that's when they rip their own umbilical cord and they get born by themselves. Um, But then there's like that scary moment of like darkness where you don't know who you are if if you don't have that history. And 
And I think they were born into a place of like loss of like, oh, they were born into a boat in the desert. So they don't know what it was like before when there was water there. Mm-hmm. They're just born there and the <laughs> without like reading it too much. So then, you know, it rains and I use a lot of imagery about water. Like when they're washing the dishes, it wasn't actually raining. We were like using a hose. Uh, and so like all of those things are intentional to think about, you know, building or like making your own country, like your new, like new in a new place with your people and your family and people you care about. And that's kind of the central theme of the film. And just to briefly talk about that desert. So it's out in San Bernardino and it was like Super Bowl weekend. And um, Mile, who plays the mom, was like, I have a Super Bowl party, so we can, <laughs> we can get this like, very serious scene over so I can drive back to Irvine. <laughs> um, so we filmed that on like, a Super Bowl weekend, that, and I thought it was really funny. I don't know, just like the juxtaposition of like, we're talking about like Homeland. And I was like, okay, I'm directing her. And she's like, I know, I've been through this. Like, I was like, okay, you're like running for your life outside of Vietnam. And she's like, I've been through it. <laughs> and she's like, I know, I'm running. <laughs> I thought maybe yeah. you were also working with that in that moment with, uh, so there's, we usually call uh, country nook, yes, mm-hmm. but it's duck nook, too, yeah, right? Yeah, and true. So, uh, it's also the unification. The earth and the mm-hmm. land, and so in that moment, it seemed like maybe you were playing with the juxtaposition. Yes. That, too. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Yes, yeah, it's so. multiple things. Yeah. <laughs> 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 nice. Yeah. Um, and Katie, so I was really moved to watching the, the final scene of, uh, of your movie where both of um, you know, the, the mother and... Um, and Robin or, or you know, there's the faces are in the frame and they're so close and the way that they're touching and the emotion there seems so real. And I kept thinking that must have been incredibly hard <laughs> to get on film. So can you tell us? Yeah, that? no. Um, so I, I knew coming into the short film that the finale scene, the scene where, um, where Robin is finally confronted by her mother and has to tell her that you know, I'm, I'm your daughter, I'm not Robert, I'm, I'm Robin. And, um, you know, I knew, that, I knew that my actress, Tina, and the woman playing the mother, um, Nguyen, I knew that they both had to be very trusting of each other before going into the process of rehearsing and shooting. So what I did is, um, so essentially, Nguyen um, is actually not based in California at all. I actually flew her all the way from Austin, Texas, um, to do the short film because I was in a situation where um, I either had two options. Um, I either could go with like um, a Vietnamese non-actor, like a Vietnamese, um, you know, first-generation boat person who had no acting experience, and I wasn't sure if I could go into that because my Vietnamese isn't that great, so I wouldn't know like how well I would direct them um, if I was on the same page with them language-wise, or I could have gone with like a non-Vietnamese trained actress, but that wouldn't feel comfortable with me either because she wouldn't have the heritage of my character. And so what I did was that I tried looking for like uh, a Vietnamese-American boat person that was also a trained actress. And I was like, that's such a rare criteria. But I basically went on Google and I Googled like Vietnamese-American actresses. And then I saw like her IMDb page as like number one. And I was like, well, let me try reaching out to her agent. And then I, and then I did. And the agent got back to us and told us that um, when 
loved the script and wanted to be a part of it. So we essentially did um, we essentially did a Skype rehearsals where I had like the two actresses um, kind of talk on Skype and you know read lines together. Um, with me watching them and, and kind of me guiding them. And then I would sort of let them know to kind of like take time to themselves to meet over Skype and rehearse together. And then I told Wynne that the first day she flew into L.A., um, I set her up to have lunch with Tina um, to kind of like hang out and kind of have that mother-daughter bond. And because Wynne was already like a mother herself, she was able to really get into the character and relate. And... By the time I met up with both of them in person for rehearsal, they were coming back from lunch and they were like joking around each other as if they actually were like mother and daughter. And so I already felt like that bond was already in place. Um, so we did rehearsals and um, rehearsals were great. Like Tina and Wynn were really bringing it. And, you know, Tina was really like moved to tears as we were performing. And when we got to shooting it the day of, Um, We basically shot in a room where, like, it was so tight, and there were, like, 20 people fit into this small bedroom, and it was getting so hot. And I think for that final scene, um, we we went up to, like, six takes, and everyone was just so exhausted. But for some reason, I just, like, all the takes were great, but there was just something more I wanted. And I think it took the seventh take for Wien and Tina to be so exhausted, they just, like broke down and I guess gave into that scene. Um, I don't think it was like, I don't think I, don't think I like, that sounds like I tortured them. I didn't torture them. Like they all had water and stuff. Um, everyone was fine. Um, but that scene took like seven takes. And I think it was because I wanted that scene to match what I saw in rehearsal. That was so fresh from them spending time together at lunch. So, um, I think, like, because I knew what their potential was in rehearsal, I knew that on set I was just like, all these takes are fine, but, like, there's just something missing, and it just took seven tries. And sometimes you just have to trust your instinct as a director of how many takes to go, like, how far to take your actor. Some directors, like Steven Spielberg, they just go to three takes and they're done. Um, Some directors, like Stanley Kubrick, they go into, like, the 20th take before they're satisfied. Um, I think it just depends on the situation and what my instinct was. But in that moment, my instinct was, you know, that take was the one I wanted that ended up in the short film. I think it's very well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have one more question for you, which is, um, as I was watching him, I was trying to figure out how old Robin, mm-hmm. or the character is, right, in this scene, in this, in this you know, interaction. And I was... Interested to hear that is, you know, you were actually basing the character on a person who was going through it right then. So how old? Right, yeah. I, I think definitely, you know, it's uh, it's always interesting to see, like, what people's interpretations, you know, of ages of characters are. And actually when I was writing the script, um, I imagined Robin to be in her senior year of high school, for her to be, like, 17 years old. And um, that she was coming to terms with her, with her gender, and she already made her mother aware of it, but she didn't want to accept her until you know that moment in the story. But when I was talking to Tina about it, um, Tina, as an actress, thought that you know it would kind of feel more authentic to her own experiences if that character was in college and was maybe like twenty or twenty-one, because um, Tina didn't start exploring 
her identity and come to terms with being trans until she was in college. And what she told me is that college was the time for her that she was away from her parents to explore who she really was. And so I think given that, it just made more sense that the character would be in her early 20s. She, you know, maybe had a couple years independent away from family, like maybe going to college out of town. And in the story, this is her visiting home for that or something. Um, that was how I interpreted it when I was directing it, and that was how Tina interpreted it when she was when she was taking on that role. So um, in my head and, and in her head, Robin is, I guess, maybe like 20, 21, and she's like maybe in her third or fourth year of college. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm going to bring this back to shared questions. Since this is a UCSB Reads event, um, uh, maybe we just keep going <laughs> and come back against this way again. But could you tell us how the, the book, The Best They Could Do, speaks to you? Yeah, so um, uh, T-Boy's The Best We Could Do, one thing that really struck to me about that book was um, this strong sense of, you know, of, of a mother-daughter dynamic and learning about your mother through you know, trauma and identity. And I think my story relates to that graphic novel in that, you know, both materials deal with a mother-daughter relationship between a first-generation refugee mother and a second-generation Vietnamese daughter. Um, And I think it just so happened that mine explored the second-generation daughter that was both queer and Vietnamese. Um, so that was how those two related. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Yeah, I, I was so touched by the book, and um, and also I had. It's not the first Vietnamese American kind of comic book I read. I had uh, read Vietnam America by G B Chan, G B Chan, like before. And but I think there, there was something about also reading the backstory of like how Tibui like came about the book that really like touched me, which was that she had been working on this project for years. Like it wasn't something that she sat down and she just like drew it and then suddenly it was a thing. It came from years of oral history of asking her parents their story and taking different forms through her graduate. Like I'm I'm talking like I know her, but I don't know her, but I, I read all these things online. <laughs> And I, and I think it really spoke to, I think, something that I was going through in, in my own work. Like, Nook is five minutes long, but it took me so long to get there. Um, I had to come into terms with my queerness. I had to learn all these production skills and, like, sort of, uh, you know, like, very technically learn how to create that vision in the kind of way that I wanted to, like, see it. And also articulate a point of view that was more complicated than what I felt was offered to me as a second generation. I think a lot of people were asking me like, oh, you just remember what your parents did and recognize their sacrifices, which I think is true. But I think also like uh, the second generation is much more political and has like a point of view about things that are both critiquing maybe like liberal Democrats, because I, I think my film kind of also critiques sort of like leftist organizing in a way that 
if people didn't know who I was, they might be confused about why I, I do that because I very much am also a community organizer and um, and I don't, you know, I am anti-war. <laughs> so it's not saying that people shouldn't be, but I think there was also a critique I was having of my friends who were sort of idealizing the Vietnam War as, because, um, you know, a lot of social movements were coming about at that time and I, you know, we're here at UC Santa Barbara. So, and, and there's a lot of history and a lot of things that people were going through, but I think the thing that was always seemed to be erased was sort of this recognition that, you know, people left the country and um, without recognizing them, without justifying US imperialism, I think was a, a sort of place that I never saw in media. I really wanted to do that, but how it comes back to Tibui is that I think like understanding that kind of thing takes so much work in different sort of forms that are not the artwork that you made. Like I made a whole documentary about being queer and second generation. It's like 50 minutes long. And I think everyone was like, okay, so now you're done with that. So what's the next thing? And I'm like, another queer Vietnamese <laughs> And then after, actually after Nook, it was like three more. So it's like, you know, it just in different shapes and forms keep informing this work. And so what I appreciate so much about Best We Could Do is it, it's so complicated, but it was so easy to read in a way. Like I read it in one night, um, but it stayed with me and it was so much more complicated in the way that she was able to articulate these very complicated experiences in such a simple way is... I don't know, very commendable and not easy. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And uh, Yeah, when I saw, when uh, I was invited to this event and I saw that it was connected with Tibui, I was kind of expecting her to be here. So <laughs> I was so excited for her. We to, brought our books. <laughs> yeah. Sign it. But it was, I'm so thankful for her book and for the opportunity to read it and learn from her. And I think that uh, one way in which her book relates to my life in so many ways. But one way in which her book uh, relates to my film is that I think she does a really good job of conveying how family separation has is so deeply ingrained in Vietnamese history. And even in my own family's history, my grandfather uh, left his kids, my parents, um, when they were just teenagers. And then my parents joined my grandfather here but left behind all their siblings. None of my grandfather's children wanted to join him here except my parents. So really, all of my family is in Vietnam, and it's just my mom and my dad and I here. So in Vietnamese families, there's this whole culture of, like, you know, big families, big gatherings. Like, you have, like, Go Ba all the way to, like, Go Mun Ba. So, like, you have, like, 13 aunts. But for me, it's, you know, I just know people on Facebook by name. Um, And I think that that, that's one of the reasons why I'm really drawn to um, advocating for families who are separated by deportation. My family is separated due to war. You know, we the pain of deportation is so different than the pain of being separated by war. So I don't want to conflate the two, but I feel like being separated from your family, especially in a culture where family is so close knit and so important, is so painful. And I think that T. Boy does an amazing job of showing what that pain looks like. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.